higher up there. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Barber Seville, the second installment of the uh, Figaro Unbound. How many of you saw The Ghost of Versailles? How many of you liked it? All of you, most of you. Okay, I'm not going to ask if there's anybody that didn't like it. We've been loving it. It's all over tomorrow. If you haven't seen it, you must go tomorrow. It is a spectacular production, and we're very proud of it. It is the, um, in the terms of the trilogy of operas by, uh, based on the plays of Beaumarchais, it is the last. It should, it, we're doing it first, but it is actually the last. The first one, of course, is the Barber Seville. So that's what you're going to see tonight. That's what you're going to hear tonight. Um, how many of you are hearing the Barber Seville for the first time? Excellent. I'm going to tell you a little story in a minute. Uh, I'm thrilled to see you, especially those of you uh, to, who are coming here the first time, because I hope to change your lives the way mine was changed when I first saw the Barber Seville. Uh, now, we have made a lot of these. Have you got them, some of them? Have you picked them? Yep. Okay. Well, the ushers have them. Ushers, are you out there? Can you, if you uh, want to hand them around, uh, perhaps you can come forward with These are, this is uh, our first attempt at making um, some of the characters clear to you. You see the Barbara Seville on one side. Just raise your hand if you want some. Uh, ooh, a lot of you. How did you, you guys must have snuck in by past the ushers. Did you show your tickets? <laughs> okay, so as you get this, you're gonna see, um, it's a little bit like a family tree, and the, the Barber Seville is on one side, and the marriage figure is on the other. You may take this home with you. Um, I'll walk you through it so that you have an idea of the relationships um, in, the, in the opera, and you can follow along, sort of, sort of like a scorecard at the baseball games. Do they have those anymore? I don't think they, no, no, that's, they don't do that anymore. Now, uh, I also, for your edification, if you feel like it, there are program notes. Read them. They're interesting. Not now. Uh, and I wrote a little article, as I usually do. The short, the short form is in your program. The long form is up on the web. Uh, it makes uh, excellent reading when you have absolutely nothing left to do. All right. Uh, I brought you uh, my iPod, of course, and I'm going to play you... Uh, a lot of ex, uh, excerpts with explanations. Um, I want to start uh, start by saying that we've been rehearsing this opera now for about three and a half weeks, which is more time than it took Rossini to write it. <laughs> he claims to have done it in 12 days. Um, uh, some people say it took him as much as three weeks to write it. This man penned off this masterpiece, which has never left the stage from the time it was premiered in 1816, has never been out of the repertory. It has been everywhere in the world, and for good reason. It is not only one of the most beautiful works, it is one of the funniest. There isn't a moment that is not full of sunshine in this, um, well, not for all the characters. <laughs> some of them have the little, uh, some of them aren't as happy as we are. You're going to laugh all night. You're going to enjoy this uh, if you haven't ever seen it. Now, uh, I have to tell you a personal story for no other reason than I'm, I just can't keep it to myself. Uh, when I was 11 years old, the first, the second opera I saw was The Barber of Seville. And that is the night that I my life changed because I felt so deeply in love with the Barber Seville that all I wanted to do was think about was the Barber Seville. So I, I went and asked my mother, I said, I want to have piano lessons so I could learn to play the Barber Seville at the piano. That's how it started. Now, in a short time, I got interested, and then that eventually, you know, went off into Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn and Brahms and Schubert and Mahler and Stravinsky and Debussy, but it all started with the Barber Seville. Uh, I still remember the night. 
Now, um, that was, I hate to tell you, but that was in 1962. Uh, about 11 years later, 1973, I got one of my first jobs conducting, and what did it happen to be? The Barber of Seville. So I was so happy because that was what I was dreaming about from the time I was um, 11. Well, I know, I started wanting to conduct when I was 13. 11, I wanted to play it at the piano. I still can't play it at the piano. It, it happens it's very difficult to play it at the piano. But I did get to conduct it in 1973 in Washington. It was one of my first uh, jobs uh, conducting an opera. And I conducted seven performances in five days, English cast and Italian cast. Uh, very young Flicker von Stade was one Rosina. I was very young, too. And Maria Ewing was the English cast. That's what was going on then. At the end of the seven performances in five days, I said, oh, this is wonderful. I can conduct this opera now all of my life. And guess what? I never did it again. And tonight is a very, very meaningful night for me. It is the first time since 1973 that I get again to conduct the Barber's Week. Now, some of this is going to be a little bit repetitive. The character of Figaro is, in fact, the personification of the author, Beaumarchais. Um, now, those of you that have seen the ghosts, bear with me. You'll know a little bit of this. Um, Beaumarchais was a French playwright. He is best known for The Barber Seville and the Magic of Figaro, though he wrote three works, the last being The Guilty Mother. Uh, you don't have to worry about that tonight, but if you come tomorrow... Oh, it's not up there anymore. If you come tomorrow night, I'll, uh, tomorrow afternoon, I will explain that to you. It's what happens to all these characters 20 years later. Uh, Beaumarchais, here's Wikipedia, a lazy man's encyclopedia. Uh, Beaumarchais, born in 19, 1732, died in 1799, was a French playwright, watchmaker, inventor, musician, diplomat, fugitive, spy, publisher, horticulturist, arms dealer, satirist, uh, financier, revolutionary, both the French and American Revolution. Quite a curriculum vitae, wouldn't you say? That's, yeah, that's a job description for you. He wrote plays because he loved them, but that's the only reason. He was not, um, he was all of those things. And in fact, he played a very important role for which he is not recognized sufficiently in the American Revolution. He is really one of our heroes, much more than Lafayette, who came much later. He uh, arranged for an enormous arms shipment at his own expense, that was delivered to the American Revolutionary Army and is credited with having used those arms at the, uh, at the Battle of Saratoga, which of course was a um, decisive victory. Now I'll ask you to raise your hand if you ever learned that in social studies. <laughs> and I cannot raise my hand because I never heard that and I would have been looking for that. So he deserves a lot of credit in, in addition to the Barber Seville and the Marriage of Figaro. Now, um, his Figaro is, in fact, Beaumarchais, and that is, um, by the way, a name he invented. There, are no, there were no other Figaros beforehand. It's because he's a born, he was born into a family called Caron. That was his name. Beaumarchais, he added later. Later, he married up twice, and he, got, he put the de Beaumarchais to make himself an aristocrat. Uh, but his, name, his na original name um, was Caron. That was his, f it was his father. And uh, Fille Caron, fils Caron, fils is son in French. Fils Caron, fils Caron, fils Caron, fils Caron, fils Caron, fils Caron, Figaro, 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 Figaro. That's where the name came from. So he made it up. Um, it is one of the most famous names. It is still a newspaper in France and one of the leading newspapers. Now, just to give you a little idea of the time, time frame, the Barber Seville was premiered in 1775. That's Beaumarchais. 
1775. Um, and by 1782, another very prominent Italian composer named uh, Giovanni Paisiello wrote a marvelous work called The Barber Seville, based on The Barber Seville. Um, I hope still to be able to present that to in public in the next, in a, in a short time with the, with uh, the young singers from the from our, uh, from our uh, uh, Young Artist Program. Uh, it is a wonderful opera, and I highly recommend it. I, I also learned it right after I learned the Rossini because I wanted to have anything that had to do with the Barbersville interested me. 1782, was, that was premiered in, in St. Petersburg. On the way back from St. Petersburg, he met, uh, he met Mozart in Vienna, and there is no question that Mozart knew Paisiello's Barbersville intimately because there are all sorts of traces in The Marriage of Figaro. When you come back in a few weeks to hear The Marriage of Figaro, I'm just gonna show you a little bit of that. Now, uh, the Barbara Seville was, belonged in the opera world to Paisiello, uh, even though two other composers wrote Barbers of Seville around 1800. It stayed there until 1816, by which time Paisiello is an old man. He is revered in all of Italy, and a young upstart, uh, Giochino Rossini, 24 years old, uh, writes, asks permission for us to write the Barber of Seville. And Paisiello, figuring a young man like that will certainly have a flop, he sort of says, yes, go ahead, do it. <laughs> walk, walk the plank, young man. And so uh, Rossini wrote it in three weeks. The premiere was a flop. Why? Because all of Paisiello's uh, followers came to the performance to boo and hiss. And in fact, the curtain had to be brought down in, uh, in the second act because they just couldn't go on. So um, Paisiello's followers were happy. However, they did not come to the second performance, which was a raging success. And from that moment on, uh, the Bar of Seville has, has made, made its way through the world. This is, by the way, the same thing that happened to Beaumarchais in Paris, at his premiere, it was booed, and as of th several days later, uh, it became a success and then held the stage. So um, it's 1816, February of 1816. The, the opera you're going to hear tonight is, uh, is, uh, is premiered in Rome, and I guess Paisiello was so unhappy or bitter or disappointed that he promptly died three months later. And Rossini then could change the name of the play. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the, the opera was called Alma Viva or The Useless Precaution. That was the title because he could not use the title The Barber of Seville because of Paisiello. So after, uh, after Paisiello died, of course, he asked to use the title, and he began using it, the Barber Seville, and that's what, of course, it has been known as ever since. Now, the Count Almaviva, he's our leading, no, he's not our, he's our second man. Uh, his name means uh, lively soul, Alma being soul, Viva being lively. Um, you'll see him as a, as a pretty, pretty uh, stock type of young lover. He is uh, he is dying of love for the young Rosina. Now, you'll see them all on your little page there, and I can show you on this. Uh, uh, here's Rosina, um, light blue, and there's the Count Almaviva. Um, Rosina, Count Almaviva, Figaro. These are the three characters that will go through all three Beaumarchais plays. They'll make it all the way to the end. Now, the story is very simple. Uh, Beaumarchais summed it up. It shows you what a determined young man, that is the Count Almaviva, can do to beat out a determined old man, 
Bartolo, who was Rosina's guardian, to win a girl's heart. Now, that's true. That's what the young man does. However, the real hero of the story is down here, and that's Figaro, because Figaro is the one who figures out how to get the two of them together, how to outsmart Dr. Bartolo, and how to get them married. And this is part of the, uh, of the political uh, implications of Beaumarchais. Beaumarchais was a, uh, was a revolutionary in many ways, and even the Barber Seville, which is, doesn't have a lot of political uh, background to it, it's still there. The idea that the servant is smarter than the count is very important. Um, that's brazen, and it's a bit, um, it's to some degree an idea that had you know, would not be acceptable at the time, and nor would it be later in the marriage of Figaro, when we will see constantly how Figaro uh, tries to outsmart everybody. Figaro is self-confident, he's wily, he, the truth is a, a relative concept to him. You use it uh, to gain, uh, to get ahead. That's what, that's what you do. So, and this describes Beaumarchais. Beaumarchais was brilliant. Um, many people adored him. Many people thought uh, of him as a genius. Many people hated him. So he made friends and enemies everywhere he went, but um, there was no question about how, uh, how, how very, very smart he was. And so the characters are stock characters in a way. The grumbly old man who wants to marry the young girl, that's Dr. Bartolo. He's a base. He's called a basso buffo, buffo meaning funny. And he's not up there because he has a beautiful voice. He's up there because he will make you laugh, and he can sing very fast. He sings words very fast. That's called patter, and you're going to hear some of that. The um, uh, Rosina is a mezzo-soprano. That's a lower voice than the soprano. In fact, um, there are only two female characters. There's the maid. Her name is Berta. When it was originally written, Rosina was the low voice, mezzo-soprano. Berta was the higher voice, a soprano. There were very few leading ladies who were mezzo-sopranos in those days. The term, by the way, didn't exist yet. Um, who could sing fast and brilliantly, and that's what Rosina has to do. So sopranos took it over right away, and it made its way all the way into, certainly into my lifetime, as a piece for sopranos, up until maybe 30 years ago, um, when all of the critical editions came out, she became a mezzo-soprano again. So she went down, and Berta went up, okay? Because you have to have contrasting voices. Now, the, to give you an idea of just the kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, character Figaro is, um, there, here's uh, some quotes from the play. And it's, it's going to show you what a skeptical, questioning type uh, his, he is as a servant. Um, He's going to overthrow Bartolo's, uh, Bartolo's authority. That's a little revolution, okay? Um, remember, this is all before the French Revolution, but, but Beaumarchais was there and to some degree w contributed to it. Um, there is an assumption of superior wit and intelligence on the part of the servant, and that will be based on him. Here's a quote, and I, uh, I take this from a, a very, very good article I found by Michael Billington. On the basis of virtues commonly required in a servant, does your excellency know many masters who would pass muster as valets? That's what Figaro asks to the count. In other words, how many of you, 
counts, marquees, dukes, could actually be a valet. Right? Uh, so he's saying something very important, that there are people who actually work, who actually keep society functioning, whereas it is a privilege in those days to have been born an aristocrat. You really didn't have to do anything except for just to be. So the servant is going to drive the plot, and the master is just going to follow him, and that's what's going to happen. Figaro is going to find the way to get into the house of Dr. Bartolo, get the young Rosina and the Count of Almaviva to meet each other, and then to get them out and get them married. Um, here's another nice quote. I love this. The Count, uh, uh, he says to the Count, because you are a great nobleman, you think you're a great genius. Nobility, fortune, rank, position. Put yourself to the trouble of being born and nothing more. <laughs> and his finalist is, whereas I, lost among the obscure crowd, have had to deploy more knowledge, more calculation, and skill merely to survive than has sufficed to rule all the provinces of Spain for a century. In other words, this is, a, this is an attack on the, on the principle of hereditary, that you are born an aristocrat and that you are always an aristocrat simply because, as he said, you were born. Uh, one great line uh, is, at one point, the Count complains, the servants in this house take longer to dress than their masters. And Figaro says, yes, because they have no servants to assist them. So you see the type of political background there is to this very, very, very funny opera. Now, this is a bel canto opera. Do you remember? We didn't, we've done this before. We'll review it again. Bel meaning beautiful, canto meaning singing. It is about beautiful singing. So uh, in the course of the opera, uh, the soprano, the tenor, and the baritone will show that they can sing high and low, fast and slow. They can sing long, sustained phrases, and they can use their text in a meaningful way. The basso buffo does not have to sing beautifully. He only has to sing fast and complain. Okay, that's his, that is his um, purpose. Opera buffa, this is called, that means what? Funny, opera buffa, uh, as opposed to opera seria, which was serious opera. Opera seria was a term that was used very much in the 18th century, and it was usually mythological stories and uh, and basically, opera buffa went right into the 19th century. Opera seria dropped out from being about mythical characters more and more to become about persons that we could see um, in a more contemporary European context from the last several hundred years. But the melodrama is created, and the melodrama is a much more serious affair than the opera seria. Somebody has to die. That makes it a melodrama. It makes it, a, it makes it a serious opera. Somebody has to die. It's usually the soprano. The tenor and the soprano are usually the ones who are in love. The baritone is the obstacle. Now, that principle has been set down very early. We see a small example, not a true example of this, in that the, the baritone, in this case, is Figaro, and he is helping the Count and Rosina. But you can consider Dr. Bartolo, who is the Basso Buffo, as the obstacle um, to their love. So you get, uh, we, you go into melodrama, and by the time that Verdi is going to take over, Rossini's going to write a lot of comedies when he's young. But he was 24. I can't remember how many operas he had written by this time. I mean, 16 or 20 operas already written at the age of 24. Uh, and then he starts writing melodramas, and he'll write melodramas until the end of his compositional career. Verdi will take that up, of course, and will 
create that for the, what will become the height of uh, Italian opera. Uh, 1822, Rossini wanted to meet Beethoven. He went to Vienna. He wanted to meet Beethoven. He couldn't get meet Beethoven. It was not easy, uh, besides which Beethoven was deaf. But he finally got taken to meet him, and Beethoven looked at him, and Beethoven complimented him on the Barber of Seville. Uh, he said, you know, that's a, that is really an excellent work. And then the man who was with Rossini said, yes, you should know that he also writes um, melodramas. And Beethoven said, yes, I know, but that's a mistake. He shouldn't be writing melodramas, he says to Rossini. He says, um, the Italians don't have any understanding of melodrama. <laughs> that's Beethoven's opinion. So there it is. Okay, but we are, we are, the, the Beaumarchais, Barbara Seville is the first autobiographical work in its way um, on the stage. And the, the title of, the, the subtitle, you know, uh, these, all these plays had a subtitle. It was the Barbara Seville or Alma Viva and the Useless Precaution. What is the Useless Precaution? The Useless Precautions are those that are taken by Dr. Bartolo in order to keep this beautiful young girl caged up so that he can marry her and have um, her dowry. She, she is too beautiful to want to be with that grumpy old man, and he has not, there's nothing uh, recommending him uh, for marriage uh, to anybody, certainly not a beautiful young lady. And of course, in the end, uh, the Count of Almaviver will get to marry her. The Barbara Seville was first given in the United States in 1825. That means nine years after its premiere. Uh, and, oh, sorry, I'm going to take that back, 1823. Uh, no, 1819. Got all these dates here. 1819 in New York. In English, 1825, not only is it given in Italian, it becomes the first opera ever given in Italian on record in the United States. Um, and so that is, that is our background. Now I'm going to take you through um, some highlights, musical ones, at least they're highlights to me, I like them. How many of you like Rossini overtures? Uh, they are, of course, performed much more often in the, on the concert stage than they are in the opera. Many overtures are played and the operas are ignored. Now, fortunately, that has changed in the last 30 years. Um, I gave a little talk last night with Marilyn Horn and Patti Lupone. I don't know if any of you were there. But uh, Marilyn Horn told us all that when she was given a chance to sing Semiramide, all she knew was the overture and one aria, and that's not so long ago. That's 35 years ago, or maybe 40 years ago. The Rossini operas ha have all had a revival. The Barbara Seville never needed that revival because it never left the repertory. But um, Rossini turned to uh, melodrama, and when he turned to melodrama, he stopped writing overtures. The overtures, in general, are only belong to the comic operas. And why did he stop writing overtures? Because he hated them. He didn't like them. He didn't like, he thought they were silly. He said, why should you have this as a concert before the opera? Why can't we just start with the opera? Very interesting because he, there is no question of his genius for writing overtures. Now he had formulas and I'm going to try to show you those formulas right now. The, the overture is like a symphony, the first movement of a symphony and follows certain principles. The first uh, movement of a symphony, and this is going to apply to, Hen uh, to Haydn, to Mozart, to Beethoven, even well into the Romantic period, um, uh, has th basically three parts. We've talked about ABA sometimes, three parts, something called an exposition, where 
the basic ideas of the symphony of the movement are are uh, are given exposed and there's there's usually uh, a there are three x y and z we'll call them x y and z those are three ideas then there is a middle section which uh, those ideas are developed and then they lead back to something that's called the reprise or the recapitulation where you get x y and z all over again now you might have something fast or exciting at the end that's going to be called a stretto or stretta uh, that means it's it, it is pulled and you may or may not have uh, a slow introduction. Slow introductions were very useful in the theater because it gave uh, the people in the theater a chance to uh, get into their seats. You know, there was no electricity, there was nobody, you know, that voice of God that comes and tells you to tell, turn off your phones. They didn't have that in the 18th century. In fact, they didn't even have lights for the most part. So uh, people would be attracted by hearing the loud chords of the beginning of the overture. Um, so. This is, uh, this is an overture with, a, with the loud, slow introduction. Now, very often a composer, the, the overtures were written last, and in most cases it was because they were usually late getting everything finished on time. And Rossini was the worst of all. He would be finishing, he apparently stayed up all night to the night before the premiere just to finish some of this opera. Now, what they often do then is to take some theme from the opera because they got it in their heads and they use that as X, Y, or Z and they use it in the course of the development. Well, uh, they use it in the course of the overture. Well, Rossini, uh, you're not going to hear any themes that have anything to do with the opera tonight because the Barber Seville, the overture, has nothing to do with the Barber Seville. It had been written for an opera called Aurelia in Palermo, uh, Palmira. Now, raise your hand if you've seen that opera here. <laughs> I, I cannot raise my hand. Okay, then he needed it for another opera, which was called Elisabetta Regina d'Inghilterra. That's about the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and that seemed to function very well. So he needed an overture. He had run out of time. There it is. He put it, he put, he put it on. So that's how this overture got written. Here's a slow introduction. This is, of course, by the greatest of Italian conductors, Arturo <laughs> Arturo Toscanini conducting. Those loud chords should have shocked you because if you were hanging around in the lobby, still drinking your wine, talking and gossiping, you would know now to come and get into your seats. Beautiful opening is simply that, beautiful music. And when we get to the fast part, we're going to see the exposition with X, Y, and Z. We're going to see the recapitulation and reprise with X, Y, and Z. We are not going to see the development. In other words, that part of the movement has been taken out of Rossini overtures basically to keep them short and concise. Okay, so now here we go, here we go. Here's the fast part, and this is, let's call this X. I see some of you nodding your heads. You know that. So he shows X to us, and he's gonna repeat X just to make sure we got it.
this is why. Now, why functions a little bit like the about like, I like the development that isn't there. He takes something, he repeats it several times. Okay, keep that in mind. You're only going to hear it once. So pay attention. Okay, now we get Z. Very different character from the A. It's important. Contrast is everything. It's very contrasted with the X. Senior overtures are famous for giving solos to the woodwinds, and the French horn is considered a woodwind. We're going to get something else. This is the final section of uh, Big A, and now we get to the formula of Rossini crescendos. Do some of you remember we talked about them before? There is a formula of repetition, and the always starts softly and gains in volume until it bursts like a, like a balloon. Now, the formula to remember is two and then three, okay? You're gonna hear this twice. That's one. Follow along, because you'll be able to hear it very shortly when you're in the hole. That's two. Repeats exactly what it, and now here comes the three. It begins like this. That, that was the first of three, okay? Here's the second of three. And the third of three, right? And now that it's gone three times, it's going to uh, uh, burst. It's repeating itself. And then another two. So you've got two, three, two. And where are we? Back at the beginning. Okay, so now you will hear X, Y, and Z all over again. Okay, now the opera starts at dawn. The Count of Almaviva has come there to serenade this young lady he wants to meet. Um, a lot of operas of the period started with the chorus. Sorry, very often the men's chorus. And so this does. Piano pianissimo, which means quiet, very quietly. Uh, the Count's servant, Fiorello, has hired musicians so that they can do what? Serenade Rosina. They have this little band. And then he's going to sing the same thing to the, uh, because he's Spanish, there's a guitar. Now this is the slow part. It shows us bel canto that he can sing slowly, and then he has to show us that he can sing quickly.
when he's finished singing uh, quickly, he's disappointed. Rosina hasn't appeared at the, at, the, at the window, and he pays the musicians. They are so grateful that they make a racket. And this brings the first little scene to an end. The chorus is dismissed, and our hero comes in. And here he is. Ah. You all know this. This is Figaro. This particular song, as it were, has no precedent at all in any Italian opera. This is, this is unique, and it has actually had a life outside of the opera house more than anything else. For some people, it represents opera. That's Robert Merrill. This is my vintage now, Robert Merrill. So, you know this famous. This used to be on the cartoons when I was a kid. And here's an example of singing very fast, patter. Finishes with a high note. Fast and loud. That formula, high note, fast, loud. Is the 19th century um, equivalent of the applause sign. That is, that's, that's your cue, applaud. All right? <laughs> we, we count on it. By the way, there are lots of operas where we do not want you to applaud during the music. This is an opera made for applause. It is built that way. The composer expected it. The singers are insulted when they don't get it. So you are participatory. We need your participation. All right? Now, you know, these operas are divided up into music that is sung and accompanied by the orchestra. Sorry, this is another serenade. Sorry about that. It is divided up into... Uh, what is called, well, well, set music with the orchestra and recitative, recitativo in Italian. This is recitative. There's a lot of it in the Barber Seville. This is where the text is more important than the music. So you follow the text in those places. Now we go inside the house for the second scene. And here's Rosina. Her famous aria, Una Voce Poco Fa. A voice a little while ago has gone into my heart. Of course, that's uh, the young man. The young man, Count Alviva, does not identify himself as a count because he wants to make sure that Rosina is going to love him for himself and not for his rank and wealth. That's Maria Callas. It has a slow part, and of course it has a faster part. Now, singers often ornamented there. They wrote their own ornamentations. There was a famous soprano named Adelina Patti who sang this uh, in the beginning of the 19th century, and, Ro and Rossini heard her sing. And afterwards, he said, 
Very nice, dear. Who wrote that piece you just sang? Now, here's another famous piece. I'm rushing through this, of course. So this is sung by this very strange character called Don Basilio. Who is Don Basilio? I put him down here. Uh, he's sort of a vagabond priest. Uh, he, he's one of those guys who arranges marriages, uh, gives music lessons. He's sort of like Figaro. He does whatever it takes just to make ends meet. Uh, what is La Calunia? That, the, Calunia is the Italian word for calumny. Um, Don Basilio is helping his friend, Don Bartolo. Uh, he, wants to, he wants the marriage, Rosina Bartolo. I guess he's getting a cut on it or something. And he's heard that the Count of Almaviva is in town and he's after Rosina. And Dr. Bartolo says, well, how are we going to get rid of him? And he says, through calumny. Let me read you this text. Slander is a little breeze, a zephyr very gentle, which imperceptibly, subtly, lightly, sweetly begins to whisper, softly at ground level in an undertoned hissing. It goes spreading, it goes buzzing into the ears of the people. It penetrates insidiously, and the heads and the brains bewilders and inflates the mind and the brain. From the mouth, emerging from the mouth, the noise grows in volume. It gathers strength little by little. It goes flying now from place to place. It seems like thunder, like a tempest that in the heart of the forest goes whistling, rumbling, makes you with horror freeze. At the, and then it overflows and breaks loose. It spreads, it redoubles, it produces an explosion like a shot from a cannon, an earthquake, a fierce wind, a tumult, a general that causes the air to resound. And the wretched, slandered one, humbled, trampled on, under the public scourge, if he is lucky, slinks off to croak. <laughs> now, that is, Don, that is Don Basilio's advice to Dr. Bartolo. We're going to use calumny. Why is this so interesting to Beaumarchais? Because Beaumarchais was extremely sensitive to the fact that he had been slandered publicly several times in his lifetime. And probably he slandered other people himself, but he really knew the terrain. So you will see this start quietly. You hear that buzzing in the background? Piano, piano, softly. Hovering around the earth. Sotto voce means below, below the voice. Now you hear the violins, that strange sound that sounds like somebody's scrubbing. That is a technique that, that, uh, that Rossini fostered. It's called ponticello. It means that you put your bow, the bow of your violin, um, right on what's called the bridge. And it makes a scratchy sound. He loved it. And he often used it for his Rossini crescendos. So this Rossini crescendo in uh, Don Basilio's aria is going to use ponticello. Ponte, by the way, means bridge in Italian. So um, this will be built up like the classic Rossini until finally, under the whip of the public, you hear the bass drum, he will go and croak. As a, and I'm not, exa I'm not uh, uh, exaggerating, that is, the, that is the equivalent of the word that is used by Rossini. Now, uh, another type of song, or aria, aria being sung by one person, is Dr. Bartolo. Pompous, complaining, nothing is good enough for him. 
He's in constant conflict with his young ward, Rosina. She's like an adolescent daughter. Nothing against them. I have two, or I've had two. <laughs> they're up. They're grown up now. But okay. Now he here he is, Ponticello on the violins. And this is fast. Now, this is the art of the basso buffo. If they can't do that, they can't hold the stage. Good, huh? And he will go on and on because he's the kind of character who goes on and on and on. The big plan of Figaro is that the Count of Almaviva is going to get into Dr. Bartolo's house disguised as a drunken soldier uh, with an uh, order to lodge him. Apparently, uh, the army had right to lodge people in people's other in people's houses, and he comes in with us. Of course, it's all fake, and that way he meets Rosina, and they are able to exchange uh, a, a conversation for the first time. The, the, what happens in Act One is based on the marriage of Figaro, the technique to start the finale, the end, with two people on stage, and to add one by one all the other characters until there is a total of seven characters on the stage making a commotion until the police have to come and quiet everybody down so you have the chorus you have everybody on stage in a static moment everybody sings loudly there are rossini over uh, rossini crescendi all over the place and this is the way at the first half of every opera this is actually the first two thirds of the opera that's what hap that is what always happens in the middle and then you start from zero again uh, in, this, in the second act. That's called the concertato. It was uh, really actually created by Mozart, but the Italians ran with it, and it will hold the stage through, through um, the 19th century up until middle and late Verdi. One other highlight, I want to find this for you. Uh, in the second act, Count Almaviva now ha has come back disguised as a music teacher and a student of Don Basilio. So he looks like a priest. And he wishes peace and joy to Dr. Bartolo, with a disguised voice, of course. And he repeats that over and over and over again. Dr. Bartles says, thank you very much. Don't trouble yourself. And he continues, joy and peace and joy and peace. Now, when that's over, he gives a music lesson, supposedly, to Rosina. Uh, Bartolo will listen. He'll fall asleep. They will be able to exchange uh, the first vows of love. And then who shows up but Don Basilio? There he is. Here he comes. And there is general confusion. Don Basilio's entrance is a surprise to everybody. And then sending him off to bed. Another famous melody, Bonasera, good evening, have a good evening, go to bed. He's only going to bed because the Count slipped him some money and said, Don Basilio, go to bed. And so he does. And other specialty of Rossini operas is the storm. 
hear the distant thunder rumbling. And the flute is the lightning. And now you hear the raindrops start. Listen to the distant thunder and wind. It's in the cellos. It's down at the bottom. Listen carefully. And then with a loud clap of thunder. Storm in an opera became very popular, partially influenced by Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, where, of course, he put a storm in. You can hear it storm away. Now, on that merry note, I'm going to wish you have a wonderful evening. If you haven't seen The Ghost of Versailles, go to bed right away after the opera tonight and get back here by tomorrow afternoon. And thank you all very, very much for coming. <laughs>